this week on the Back Table Podcast. What could happen to my patient down the line with this? And again, for me personally, the inability to access the cavity five years from now in a patient with an abnormal bleeding episode, that worries me and it bothers me. When there's an option to do a technology that's equally effective but preserves the cavity, that would be my choice for that reason. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. First, a brief word from our sponsors. There's a reason why 9 out of 10 women are satisfied with the Serene Cryotherapy device. It minimizes pain and maximizes relief. Provide lasting relief from heavy, painful periods with confidence. Serene is a well-tolerated and effective cryoablation treatment that can preserve her future diagnostic options. For you, Serene is an effective solution designed to fit into your practice routine. To discover more or request a demo, visit serene.com. For detailed safety information, please visit serene.com safety. And now, back to the show. This is your host, Mark Hoffman, and... And once again, we have our co-host, Dr. Amy Park. Amy, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Busy, and uh, but good busy. The alternative, I guess, would be worse. We have an outstanding guest today, Dr. Barbara Levy, who is clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at George Washington University School of Medicine and voluntary clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences at UCSD. Dr. Barbara Levy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark and Amy. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And we're going to talk about endometrial ablation today. So Barbara is a friend and a mentor of mine, so it's wonderful to have not only an expert on the show, but uh, it's always fun to have folks we're not meeting for the first time on the show. So it's an absolute pleasure to see you again and to have you on the show. Thanks, Mark. We like to start every show allowing our guests to introduce themselves. So please tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how you became interested in endometrial ablation. It's a very long career. Are you sure you want that? We, we, we could take we, us the whole time. We can, we can edit this down. <laughs> Don't worry. We, got, we, have, we have great engineers. Excellent. Excellent. So I am an obstetrician gynecologist. I actually practiced OB for only one year. As soon as I got my boards, I stopped practicing OB and did GYN only for the vast majority of my career. Part of that was just my interest always was in, in surgery and minimally invasive gynecology. But also I had an infant, a teenager, and a husband who's a heart surgeon. And so in addition to running a practice, I was a single mom and obstetrics just didn't work with that at all. So, and I was the third woman OBGYN in the Seattle area. And so none of my patients wanted my partners to deliver them. My partners were men. And that all piled up, kind of drove me to GYN only very early in my career. And then I also had a very unique patient population because I was seeing patients who were unhappy with the gynecologic care that they were getting. And it didn't take me very long to figure out that what I had learned in residency probably wasn't right and that my patients were telling me things that I had not heard before. And I started questioning a lot of things like, gee, how many operations are enough for somebody with chronic pelvic pain? Does lysing adhesions actually do anything? And this is back in the 1980s when, you know, we were so excited by laparoscopic surgery that we were all just wanted to look in there and see, because prior to laparoscopy, 
we had to do laparotomy. And so the threshold for those things was, was quite high. In any case, I had a very, very busy and active practice, and I was very, very fortunate to be in practice with Dr. Richard Soderstrom, one of the founders of the AAGL. And so he got me involved in AAGL very early on. I won the resident's prize paper in 1984 and was up on the podium, absolutely scared to death of, you know, delivering this paper to a thousand people. But it was my entree into organized medicine. And as the years went on, I was elected to the board, worked on the CME committee. And fast forward almost 10 plus years, Harry Rich came along, laparoscopic hysterectomy came along, and we had no codes to describe the things we were doing. We were learning how to do ovarian cystectomies and oophorectomies, and there were no CPT codes to describe those things. So AAGL ended up sending me as a liaison to ACOG's coding and nomenclature committee, which was the way the committee was named at that time. And that was the start of all of my work in coding reimbursement policy, which has been 25 years or more of working with the AMA, with ACOG, as the years went on, I was first female voting member of the RBRVS Update Committee. I became chair of that committee in 2009 and chaired that committee for six years, and then have rotated onto the CPT editorial panel, and I am vice chair of the panel. I left private practice after a little over 30 years in the same location and uh, was recruited to ACOG to uh, serve as the vice president for health policy and worked at ACOG for seven years, doing our health policy, health economics, global health, maternal morbidity, mortality, quality and safety, trying to build implementation science into how professional organizations work so that in addition to doing guideline development, we actually worried about how do we get those guidelines to the point of care. So it was a wonderful time there, building a team of over 50 people, working on all of these really incredible opportunities to improve healthcare for women. So in 2019, I left the college and started doing independent consulting. And I'm doing consulting and working for some startups and we're consulting for some big organizations at this point, but also working with AAGL in the EMIGS, the Essentials and Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery. And I'm very proud to say working with ABOG to make sure now that our residents in OBGYN get to have a GYN-specific skills test and cognitive test to qualify for our boards. So it's been a lot of work. It makes me tired thinking about it. It's so amazing. And, and it's really crazy because all of these changes have happened over such a short period of time. And you've been really here for a really seminal period in OBGYN. I mean, the dawn of laparoscopic hysterectomy, adding the codes, AGL, and then joining these older organizations like AMA and ACOG. I mean, that's pretty stellar. And working with ABOG as well. So I took FLS and there's a lot of specific liver and cholecystectomy questions on the portion. And it's just completely not applicable to OBGYN. The tasks are. Yeah, the tasks are fine. The difference is that the EMIX tasks are within a bowl rather than a square. So the female pelvis is not a square box. It's angular. And so the EMAKES tasks are within an angular bowl. We call it the lapra bowl for doing those tasks. And the cognitive tests is 
far more specific. It, it is specific to gynecologic surgery and the complications and the energy sources and all those things that we use. So really far better for our residents to be studying those things than learning about splenectomies. And your work on the check, that it's where you and I first met, where you taught me, I mean, it, it's rare that you meet someone who just changes how you think about everything that you're doing. And so my time on that committee completely just shifted my understanding of how the healthcare system works, health economics, and all of it. And your constant just support and education in ways that has shaped my career and the work that I'm doing where I am now and hopefully beyond. But I'm just, you know, just so grateful that I, I got the opportunity to work with you in that setting because it really was it really was an unbelievable room of incredibly thoughtful, hardworking, and brilliant people. And I just felt like I got like put in the wrong room. And it, it really felt like a gift to get that education from you guys. So that, that was that was incredible. So yeah, thank you again for that. And I'll tell you that every time I see you. But well, we need to have you come back on just to talk about health economics and coding, things like that. But today, we want to talk about endometrial ablation. Talk to us about endometrial ablation, like what, what you understand of the history of endometrial ablation, when it all kind of started, what that looked like, and how it's evolved. Well, it's another amazing evolution, starting with my career. It started with the thought leaders, Milk Olrath, Frank Lawfer, who were thinking about ways to manage abnormal bleeding without hysterectomy. You know, in the days when I learned hysteroscopy, I learned how to do things using a cystoscope without continuous flow. I mean, that's how rudimentary things were at that time. But the beginning of endometrial ablation was really milt with the ag laser and using a fiber. And you can imagine how tedious that was to take a fiber and try to get the entire endometrial cavity, try not to perforate the endometrial cavity, and then electrosurgery with the rollerball. And again, we used to teach people it's like mowing your lawn. You know, you want to overlap areas but it was really dependent on how thick the endometrium was, the settings of the electrosurgical generator, the size of the rollerball. It was all monopolar at that time. And so there were a lot of variables in terms of how people did. It all had to be done under anesthesia in an operating room. So industry got involved and they said, well, we can think about some better ways to do this. And I actually sat on the OBGYN devices panel as the FDA was considering what sorts of studies would they require for these concepts of global endometrial ablation. And so the early studies were randomized clinical trials, randomizing people to rollerball or the newer technology. And so the first one out was the balloon, ThermoChoice, which was reasonably good, but it was still heat. There were, I will say, enthusiastic OBGYNs who did it in the office, they had very tolerant patients. Most patients in the United States would not tolerate the heat in an office setting without analgesia of some kind. It really took off. The concept that you didn't have to have this great skill set in hysteroscopy, because frankly, to get a rollerball up into the cornua to make sure that you were getting the entire cavity to make sure that, you know, with full duration, with electrosurgical energy, you can toast the surface and not get deep. And so you really had to have a deep understanding of electrosurgical energy to understand how fast to move the rollerball, how to overlap, how to do it. And so the results were variable. And so the concept of global endometrial ablation was awesome. 
it was a way to democratize, if you will, that all OBGYNs would be able to do this kind of a procedure. And in the early days, the early studies were very limited in terms of who were the right patients. So the patients had to be ovulatory. They had to have a relatively normal-sized uterus with no fibroids. Those were the initial inclusion criteria for the randomized clinical trials. And then as more and more of these devices came on market, FDA became more comfortable with doing single-arm studies and comparing retrospectively to rollerball, which was an easier study to do for people in industry. And the whole concept of endometrial ablation was always to reduce heavy menstrual bleeding to normal or less. The concept of creating amenorrhea was actually never the goal. The goal was to reduce heavy menstrual bleeding to the point that we could avoid hysterectomy. So that's kind of a baseline history. How did rollerball become the standard without such rigorous testing? It seems like it was just grandfathered in, or was it just people were doing it? And Yeah. So in the 1980s and early 90s, things that had always been used were grandfathered, but it was also that there wasn't a specific device that had to be approved by FDA. So there was an instrument. The rollerball was an instrument that went onto the hysteroscope, but it wasn't a medical device in the, in the true definition of how FDA, you know, I'm sure the rollerball had a 510K because it's the same as a ball you would use at an open procedure, a ball electrode. Is there a urologic use for rollerball or is that something that was made specifically for gynecology or do you know? I don't know. I don't know. But you can imagine that it probably was used for coagulation of bleeding in the bladder or at the prostate. So prostate bed, if people were doing prostatectomies. So I imagine that I don't recall there being some, oh, look at this new instrument. I just recall that we had loops and we had rollerballs and that's what people used. I think the YAD was a little bit more problematic in terms of approval, except that YAG lasers were already approved. And FDA was in its infancy in terms of devices. So the on the pharma side, FDA has been around for a really, really long time. But the Devices Act actually grandfathered a lot of things on the device side. And that seems like a whole other episode where we could talk about 510Ks <laughs> and FDA and all that stuff. You know, I haven't done hysteroscopy in a long time, but you're coming up against, I'm just thinking back of all these innovations just in hysteroscopy, like, you know, having to, I trained in rollerball and and I remember when the Thermo Choice and the balloon came out and the Nova Shore with the cornu and covering the cornu because of the shape and all these other things that were actually precluded the need for worrying about a fluid deficit bipolar energy and using saline instead of these hyperosmolar fluids. I mean, I forgot about all of this stuff, but it, <laughs> it, it, we've seen a lot of stuff in the last 20 years. We have. And, and you know, the MAUD database, which is the database where complications are theoretically reported to FDA. And manufacturers are required to report when they know about a complication. But we as surgeons and hospitals don't have that same regulatory requirement. And so we know that the MAUD database is not complete. But we started to see some complications related to something like bipolar mesh device that sucks on the uterine wall and then delivers deep energy. So as we think about our patients who've had five C-sections and their risk of dehiscence, we can think about how thin that uterine scar might be. 
And we started to see burns. We started to see bowel injuries. We started to see some things. And so along came cryoablation. And cryoablation always sounded really great to me because you were freezing and therefore numbing the nerves as you were doing the procedure. So it was much more tolerable in the office, but it was a very kludgy system. It was called her option. And it was that you had to create ice balls throughout the uterine cavity overlapping under ultrasound guidance. So you were sort of determining how deep, how big an ice ball to do, and then you had to thaw it, and then you had to go in another location, and then you had to do it again. So it took quite a long time. It was ultrasound guided, but it did work. And what I loved about it was that patients were super comfortable. The only uncomfortable part of that procedure was the initial dilation, which was only, I don't remember exactly how big the dilator was, but it was maybe six millimeters. It wasn't, it wasn't eight or nine. So cryoablation sort of had a little bit of a following just among the people who liked to do procedures in the office. And again, there were people who were doing the, you know, heat procedures in the office. But as time went on, I think our office staff and our nurses and others complained a lot about patients. It's really bad for business when people are screaming in the office. You know, people in the waiting room don't like to hear that. And so it became more standard for people to engage with anesthesiologists or nurse anesthetists and to do IV sedation, which added risk and added time to those procedures. It still was financially lucrative to do them in the office because all of, Mark, this is to all of the things we talked about at Check. all of the overhead costs of doing those procedures is covered when you do them in the office. When you do them in a facility, whether it's an ASC or hospital outpatient, the hospital or the facility is getting all of that payment for all of those things. I, th- I don't think I've, I don't know that I've seen an office endometrial ablation. I mean, I've seen, I remember rollerball. I remember, you know, having to make sure patients didn't get pressed after their, you know, when they weren't before we were using saline and things like that. But most of what I see now is in the OR. So talk to us about the options. Like what's, what are people using now? What are the most common and what's available that people are maybe using less frequently and how do they compare? Yeah, so there are lots of options out there. Companies have seen the 200,000 or so cases that are being done a year and recognize that that's a reasonably good market. Women will continue to have heavy menstrual bleeding. So again, reasonably good market. What we have now are a bunch of heat technologies, whether there's steam, there was microwave for a while, there's still the bipolar mesh, which is very, very popular, but really painful. It is short, but it's really, really uncomfortable. And I don't know anyone in the United States who's doing that procedure without IV sedation. Now, there are many, many practices that are doing IV sedation in the office. But to me, that means now you have to have a recovery area and you have to have an RN that's you know dedicated to watching that patient. You have to make sure she has a, a ride home. I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure and overhead that goes into trying to do that. So about 10 years ago, a company got started looking at how could they do cryoablation more effectively, efficiently, and really make it an office procedure that that worked. And so a lot of engineering went into this current cryoablation technology, which is called Serene. And again, I'm a big fan of cryo, both for the anesthetic aspects of it and something we didn't mention before, but the healing of the endometrial cavity 
post-ablation is different after freezing than it is after heat. I can't explain to you the why, but I will tell you that most of the amenorrhea associated with the heat technologies is related to creation of ashramids. It is that the walls of the uterus stick together, and we know that the post-ablation syndrome often comes from little islands that are still active above an area of dense scarring that cyclically will create severe pain. So access to the uterine cavity, again, as a doctor who practiced in the same community for 30 years, I followed my patients across the lifespan. And it always bothered me that I was doing something or I might be doing something that would preclude my ability to evaluate my patient long-term. So what if she had an episode of abnormal bleeding five years after the ablation? How am I going to work that out? How am I going to evaluate that? Can I see the entire cavity? Can I feel confident that if I'm sampling something that she doesn't have a cancer in there? And I think that's why a lot of us in the MIGS world, we think a little bit more about global endometrial ablation maybe than others because we see so many of the complications. Not, I don't mean boundary type complications, but maybe the failures more so than the complications. But the patients who undergo it and they have pain afterwards, whether it's post-ablation syndrome, whether it's failure, whether it's eight years later, have you know they're menopausal and having bleeding and I can't sample the cavity and the ultrasound doesn't tell me much of anything. The lining is... Well, you try to put a hysteroscope in there and you just, yeah. You hit a wall. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's seriously Asherman syndrome. So for me... That cavity access is a major distinguishing feature of cryotechnology compared to heat of any kind. So what do you see when you go back in afterwards? Because I've only, after post-ablation with heat, I mean, it's stuck together, it's fried. It's a mess. So the long-term follow-up for Serene specifically was over 90% ability to see the cavity long-term. So for me, that's really a big plus. What does that compare to other modalities, like 90% compared to? Well, they haven't even done those studies. Cavity access is, you know, because that's bad news for them, right? Everything Amy just said is exactly what happens. You try to put a scope in there and you just see adhesions, you see scar. And it's part of the mechanism of action. I mean, they work really well when they work well for that reason. I mean, I'm not like a usual ablation person. I did actually present at SGS and I published something in fellowship with Linda Bradley about post-ablation, actually uterine artery ablation, uterary, uterine artery embolization complications, but also there was along those lines during that same period in the late 2010s era that like all those sequelae of abnormal vaginal discharge prolapsing fibroids or, you know, dyspareunia, persistent bleeding, the post-ablation tubal syndrome. I've seen that a couple times. It's devastating. It's really bad. Yeah. The cyclic pain with the persistent endometrial tissue at the cornua and the dilating up the the tubes causing these hematosalpings. It's, It's pretty painful and causes a lot of discomfort. So I just remember kind of going well, I'm not sure. And then a lot of obese patients were getting it and that was a contraindication. So I agree with Mark. I, I just saw a lot of patients coming through and uh, it, it seemed like, why not just get an IUD and then hysterectomy? Well, so remember that in the early days of endometrial ablation, the Mirena IUD, the levonorgestrel IUD didn't exist. 
So that came along later. And absolutely, in my practice, I would 100% recommend to patients that because you still need permanent contraception if you're going to have an ablation. So to me, the first line of treatment was always think about a levonorgestrel IUD, for sure. That said, I will say that the other thing that happened across the years is that the strict criteria that FDA originally used for the pivotal trials, ovulatory patients with a normal size uterus and no fibroids got expanded. And they got expanded now to small fibroids and maybe some polyps. And then some of the studies did not require that the patients were ovulatory. And that's where we really start to get into trouble because now you've got patients who are at least somewhat anovulatory and at risk long-term for hyperplasia or endometrial cancer. And now there were thought leaders who said, well, if I destroy the whole endometrium, then we're reducing their risk of endometrial cancer. And most of us were saying, yeah, but you never really destroy the entire endometrium. And does that cancer actually start from the superficial or does it start from the basalis? Who knew? But what happened was, of course, these industry does what industry does. They start promoting this and expanding the indications for doing this procedure. Patients love the idea of no hormones. So it was a way of sucking women in. And then one or two of the companies really started pushing amenorrhea as the endpoint and the thing that was really meaningful. Most studies, in fact, every study that I'm aware of that asks women what they want, they want a return to normal or a little bit less than normal. And amenorrhea is not an endpoint that most women in focus groups and other things are, are looking for. And in fact, culturally, some women absolutely do not want amenorrhea. And in my practice, Amy, there were women culturally who would not have a foreign body in their uterus. I mean, they just, IUD is not an acceptable form of treatment for a certain population of people. There's a lot of patients in my practice who the idea of an IUD scares them. I know I have patients who have unbelievable long lists of terrible medical comorbidities and dozens of surgeries, and, and they're going, oh, well, an IUD scares me more than a hysterectomy. So, well, then my job is to educate you to the point where you're more scared of the hysterectomy than the IUD because of, you know, it is amazing that, you know, how, you know, I mean, again, we're education. We're not paternalistic. We want to make sure we inform our patients. But I do think the other thing with education with as it relates to endometrial ablation is I have a lot of patients that come see me that, well, I, I was told I wouldn't have periods. And the counseling is not what the device manufacturers recommend, what any of the evidence suggests that people want, nor is it the thing that any of the studies are looking for, which is reduced bleeding or or, or eumenorrhea. Amenorrhea is sometimes a side effect, but that's, and, and so patients are going, well, I didn't want to have a period anymore. So, well, but then your doctor shouldn't have told you you weren't going to have a period. I mean, that's not, yeah, that is not appropriate counseling for the Mirena IUD or the Liletta, the levonorgestrel IUD, nor is it appropriate counseling for endometrial ablation. If a patient really wants guaranteed amenorrhea, the only way we can guarantee that is with a hysterectomy. And I was very clear with my patients about that. Isn't there a high rate of hysterectomy post-endometrial ablation? Do you know what that rate is? Is it like the range of 20 to 30 percent? Is it 50 percent? Yeah, it's somewhere between 17 and 25 percent. It all depends on how many years you go out and what were the inclusion criteria for the patients. So the more obese, young patients, 
you include in your study, the higher your rate of hysterectomy is going to be. So the right patient for an endometrial ablation is someone in her 40s who's completed childbearing, who maybe has a partner with a vasectomy or she's had a tubal sterilization, and she wants reduction in her heavy menstrual bleeding and would be happy with hypomenorrhea, but we're not promising amenorrhea for anyone. We shouldn't be because the real data on endometrial ablation of any kind is that, yes, amenorrhea may be a side effect for some, and that may be the cause for many people of their severe pain in subsequent months. For patients who are getting thermal ablation, are there any things that they or their providers can do to minimize the risk of wounds? Do you know if estrogen or IUDs or those kinds of things can be helpful for no, so they're not approved for the use of an IUD post-ablation. We don't know what perforation rates would be or, you know, what would happen. You know, there's some companies out there looking at hyaluronic acid or, you know, putting some sort of a gel inside the uterus. Those are investigational things, none of which are available currently. So currently, we don't have anything that anybody knows of that works. Estrogen works for people with Asherman syndrome who want fertility, but you're not applying heat. You know, you're very specifically not damaging tissue with heat when you're treating Asherman syndrome for fertility. So I'm not at all sure that with the destruction of the endometrium down to the basalis that that estrogen would be helpful. I don't know of anybody who's tried it, but it would be a tough study to do because you'd have to be doing hysteroscopy periodically three months, six months, a year later. And you'd be treating people with pretty high doses of estrogen for, I don't know, six weeks. I mean, for whatever, however long the healing period would be. So just for my knowledge in terms of the popularity and uptake of endometrial ablation and who's doing it, like what is your sense? What do the stats say? I don't know. Yeah, so it has declined with the increasing use of the levonorgestrel IUD. It's definitely not in its heyday as it was, although there's a lot of new technology out there. I think that it's been relatively stable. You know, these numbers are hard to come by because even Medicare database isn't going to help us at all. Medicaid database isn't going to help us at all. So we kind of have to look at all payer databases, which are really expensive to try to get a handle on it. But it looks like somewhere around a couple hundred thousand cases a year. I think that if cryoablation really takes hold and people recognize that they can do a procedure in a 15-minute office slot with no additional help and the patient is comfortable and goes home right away and goes back to normal activities, that that probably will drive more because the threshold for a patient, I mean, the cost to a patient to go to an outpatient facility, whether it's an ASC or an outpatient hospital facility, is going to be substantial, right? They have a percentage of total cost that they will have to pay versus a $25 or $35 copay in the office, and that's it. So there's a big cost difference for patients, and I think there's also that threshold. Like if you're going into the hospital and you're having an anesthetic, I would be a little antsy about that versus being in your own physician's office where you have a comfort level and could have a procedure that's not more really than putting in an IUD. So you're saying with cryoablation. That's something that not seen done in my practice. It's not something I've seen in training. It's it's obviously something new that we're 
here to talk about a little bit, but talk to us a little bit about the device. I think what Serene is what we're talking about. Because, yeah, I mean, endometrial ablation is in the OR in my practice. It is something we are not doing in the office. We're not talking about doing in the office, whether it's at the ASC or OR. People are undergoing anesthesia. This is, there's a recovery period and what you're saying. And, I, and I've not, I've read a little bit about it, but I'm not very well versed on cryoablation or the new devices coming out. But talk to me about what it is, how it works. Are we dilating all those things? I want like just walk us through how this procedure gets done. So first of all, it's a handheld device with no capital equipment required. So there's no big generator or something for purchase. It's all a self-contained single unit. It has a canister of gas. So what happens is patient comes in, we do our usual, hello, how are you? We've already talked to her about endometrial ablation, so she's prepared. If she is someone who has irregular periods, we're going to want to treat her at the follicular phase or with a thinned endometrium. So you really want that endometrium to be early follicular phase in terms of thickness. The device itself is about 5.5 millimeters, so it's about the same as the IUD in terms of dilation. And it is deployed. You measure the cavity. It deploys a liner that conforms to the shape of the uterus. So it can conform around a polyp or in an irregularly shaped uterus. And it's like a balloon. It, they call it a liner because it's unlike a balloon. It's not round. It actually uses the very slow increase in gas pressure to conform to the irregularities in the lining of the uterus. It's amazing. They've got this all like mindless it's all in the handpiece. It tells you what to do. What's the next step? Tests for integrity of the uterus to make sure that the uterus is intact. And then it slowly increases this gas pressure so that she's not feeling a sudden onset of pressure. And as the gas expands, it cools. And so it gets to maximum temperature fairly or minimum temperature quite quickly. The entire procedure is about seven minutes. Patients tell me that they have less discomfort than the placement of an IUD because they don't get that cramping. Most of the docs who were doing the pivotal trial used NSAIDs than a paracervical block. So if people are used to doing a paracervical block for an IUD, I would say do it. I would say for multiparous vaginal delivery patients who have you know, an OS that's accessible and pretty easy, probably not necessary for somebody who's had four C-sections. You probably want to do a paracervical block because you, you may have some trouble dilating. Some used NSAIDs, and that's it in terms of pre-treatment for the patients. It is also the original cryoablation procedure, remember the ice ball, her option, had within the code ultrasound guidance because you had to have ultrasound guidance for that procedure. So to use that code without a modifier, putting a, a transabdominal ultrasound probe just to make sure that you're in the right place or you're aiming correctly in a retroverted or anaverted uterus allows you to use that cryoablation with ultrasound guidance code that's been in existence for, for a long time. So the patients are very comfortable. So do you ultrasound every patient? It's not that you have to do ultrasound guidance, but yeah, you put the ultrasound on just to see where's my probe, is it in the right place, which is reassuring, especially with a really retroverted or antiverted uterus. Patients are really comfortable during the procedure. Importantly, they're really comfortable after the procedure. So my experience with the heat ablation rollerball or 
the others is that the release of prostaglandins as the destruction of that endometrium happens. And Amy, this was really true with uterine artery embolization. Patients have really severe pain for 24, 48 hours afterwards. And patients call the office and they're, they're really uncomfortable. That doesn't happen with cryoablation. Again, I don't know enough of the basic science or the physiology to say why it doesn't happen with freezing, but it doesn't. So patients do have a bit of a watery discharge for a few weeks afterwards. It's not as much as it was with the her option. Her option was a lot of copious. And anybody who ever did cryo of the cervix, I know I'm really dating myself now before, before LEAP, but they had a lot of watery discharge. This is some, but not as much. And we just tell patients to expect it. And then the way you described it was so evocative. Like, is it like that squishy little ball that my kids get in the, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it makes it sound like it's conforming like some. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is. The engineering is really, really remarkable for how they did this and how they really thought through what are the things that make women hurt. And, you know, you could do this procedure faster if you just jacked up the pressure right away. And they said, yeah, you know, we'll just slowly increase the pressure so the uterus gets used to it, you know, because it uses a combination of the of the cooling and the pressure to get a, a very uniform depth of uh, freeze. How much do you have to dilate again? 5.5. Oh, that's not bad at all. So you just dilate up to 20 French or something? You're probably not dilating on very many people that I'm guessing. I mean, if it's, if it's like an IUD... Yeah, I mean, it depends on the patient. As I said, if she's had a bunch of C-sections, never had a vaginal birth, you may have to dilate her. Some people, you know, have really stenotic services after after C-section. So I think it depends on the patient. Somebody with a history of atypical hyperplasia, you know, I think I would counsel very carefully somebody who's under 30 because it just doesn't last like forever and ever and ever. The, the benefits do diminish with time, I think, with any ablation procedure. And all of the studies show the best outcomes in people in their 40s. So, you know, she's younger. And, you know, I would say maybe this isn't the best option for you. Someone who's not willing to say that they're completed their childbearing. Like if they want an option, the last thing any of us who still do obstetrics want is to manage a patient's status post-ablation who gets pregnant and has a placental abnormality and accreta. You know, that's just not what you want. Any number of C-sections with this? Yeah, no. So C-sections were allowed in the pivotal trial for Serene. And, you know, again, your ultrasound will help you because you can look at the scar. And there was a measurement. I think it had the myometrium had to be at least a centimeter in the trial for FDA. So that was a safety thing. I think, again, ultrasound helps you know that. If you put the ultrasound on somebody and, and you can see right into the cervical canal and they got nothing, that's probably not the best patient for any ablation procedure. What's the longest you guys have followed these patients? Published data is at three years. Patients are certainly at this point six plus years out, I think. Yeah, long enough for me to be comfortable. You mentioned Ashermans being far, far less common with cryo versus thermal ablation. Is there a place for repeat ablation for these patients with this device? I know it sounds like it's probably not been out long enough for it to be studied, but would that be a potential benefit or was there a role for that? Yeah, I think there are two really, really cool studies to do. One is a repeat ablation. You know, you'd want to do an IRB approved, you know, inform your patients that this is not standard of care. 
I see no reason why you couldn't do it because you have cavity access to the whole cavity. It should be doable. And then the second one is, to Amy's earlier point, what about doing the ablation and then putting a levonorgestrel IUD in, not to prevent Asherman's, but for contraception? Or a non-levonorgestrel, what if you put in a, a non-hormonal IUD in patients that are not good candidates? Like breast cancer patients are really good candidates Breast cancer patients who have heavy menstrual bleeding, either during their treatment or post-treatment, young people sometimes get their periods back, and we can't use hormones to manage their bleeding. Other cancers, people with leukemias and who are under treatment and have very heavy bleeding, ablation is a great technology for them. And patients who want control over their reproductive future and aren't good surgical candidates for salpingectomy or sterilization, I mean, to be able to provide them with long-term contraception when they may not be able to get salpingectomy or a tubal sterilization in their partners. Yeah. Just to be clear, though, the ablation is not contraceptive. It's not. No, it's, that's my point is it's not contraception. So in patients who don't or aren't able to get permanent sterilization, being able to potentially, again, an important study to think about in the future is to be able to potentially do a, an intrauterine device. Yeah. I would love to do that study. That'd be interesting. I would love to do that study. I think that saying to a patient, especially these days where we don't have hysteroscopic sterilization available anymore, saying to a patient, well, you know, you need some permanent kind of contraception, especially if she's not partnered at the moment, right? So that's another counseling thing. Where their partner can get a vasectomy. What if they've got more than one partner? We, We make a lot of assumptions when talking to our patients, but... We do. I think having our patients, providing them the opportunity to have, when I say reproductive choice and you know, control over the reproductive features to make whatever decision they want without relying on a partner. And that's a big part of it, I think, for many of our patients. But for now, to say that you need to have a surgical procedure for sterilization is, you know, it's a hard thing to say to people, unless they're having a procedure anyway for some other reason. But so I think endometrial ablation has a place. I think it has a place in the right patient population. I also think a lot of our patients do not complain about heavy bleeding because they've had it their whole lives and they're not aware, like there's no benchmark for it. But Mac Monroe and a whole group of people published a paper fairly recently about the incidence of iron deficiency in the reproductive age women. And it's dramatic. I mean, it's really high. And so women tolerate an awful lot without much complaint. And it does majorly interfere with quality of life. And there's a very large group of patients who are told their only option is hysterectomy. And that makes me really, really sad. I think most of us in the MIGS world have those patients who come to see us for that second opinion and we get to offer them a bunch of things that no one's ever told them. And it's it's frustrating and it's sad, but also it's nice to be able to be the one to offer them those solutions. I mean, that's part of what we do is to try to be experts in all the different approaches so we can offer whatever each patient needs in that moment or in that whatever, whatever they want in that moment. And the unintended consequences, I'm not sure we're generally aware. I'll tell you the story of a patient of mine in my telemedicine practice who had heavy menstrual bleeding since adolescence, went to see a doctor who said, your only choice is hysterectomy. So she never went back. She never sought care because she didn't trust anybody. Fast forward about 10 years, and we saw her after her trip to the emergency room with loss of consciousness with her period. Her hemoglobin was four. You know, that's just a travesty. You know, that should never have happened. But we don't realize that patients in their heads say over and over and over again what we tell them. And then 
we lose their trust. And so being really careful to tell a patient about all options, I think is is a really important message to all of our colleagues. It is interesting about uh, like, if you only have one tool in your toolbox, that's what you end up recommending. And it's such a lesson listening to you guys to just remember that it's just really important to have a lot of tools in your toolkit, in your armamentarium, because patient have choices and this is ultimately a quality of life issue. Yes, you can get deathly ill from, of course, this severe anemia, but people people have some legitimate fears and concerns and, you know, just parallel to the mesh story for slings, now that we have other options, like patients are really, you know, in terms of the, the bulk amid urethrobulking, like people really are going for that a lot more. So it's important to respect the patient autonomy and and not push it an agenda or, you know, a procedure. Patients, they can sense it out right away. They can. And to your point, I mean, you bring up another really good point, and that is for us as physicians, we need to be thinking about the long-term consequences of things that we do. And so MESH is another great example of what could happen to my patient down the line with this. And again, for me personally, the inability to access the cavity five years from now in a patient with an abnormal bleeding episode, that worries me and it bothers me. When there's an option to do a technology that's equally effective but preserves the cavity, that would be my choice for that reason. Not the immediate differences because immediately there's not that big a difference in their outcomes, but what's it going to be for my patient five years from now or 10 years from now? I think that's huge. And I think most of our patients are not ideal patients. When we're talking about size, risk of endometrial cancer, and those things, our patients, our country is getting bigger. The rate of endometrial cancer is going up, as we all know, for that very reason. The other thing, when you talk about doing this in the office, though, as you talk about this, the wheels start spinning a little bit in my head because, as I've talked about in the show, I've spent some time working in eastern Kentucky in rural practices, and patients getting up to see me is not a small deal. These are patients that are working that getting time off and pre-ops and post-ops and anesthesia and getting a ride, all of these things are... They're barriers. They're huge barriers in ways that certainly, until I went out there and talked to folks and experienced that as a provider, to realize that they would rather live with what they were dealing with where they were than to have to make multiple trips to see me, even though maybe just a couple of hours. It's a huge barrier. And so, I mean, these are being done in the office. These are And so the patient's they need no anesthesia. They can, are they leaving like they got an IUD? I mean, they're able to go back to work in theory that day, or is it a bit more than that? Like yeah. What, what is... No, no, no. It's it's quite similar to having an IUD placed. That's pretty, I mean... That's amazing. It's not what I'm used to when I'm thinking about endometrioblation. It's not what we're doing. We're always trying to minimize or trying to think about every program I've built. I think I have to build this with our rural patients in mind, because if it works for them, then everybody else will just consider that VIP care. And to, to be able to do a procedure in the office with no downtime, without a ride, without asking two people to take a day off work or whatever it is, those are big barriers that we need to think about more often, I think, as, 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 as surgeons. We also, you know, Mark, have to think about access issues from the provider standpoint, too. So when we leave our office to go to a facility to do a procedure, it's incredibly inefficient, right? Even if you have block time, you're waiting on anesthesia, you're waiting on recovery, you're waiting on whatever, whatever. Turnover, cleaning, all of it. Versus being able to do something in a standard 15-minute office slot, that's dramatically different in terms of the cost to your practice, the opportunity cost. You know, what is it really costing you 
to do an endometrial ablation in a facility setting. It's different. It's absolutely different. For us, as a lot of people just do Botox in the ASC, and I'm like, oh no, we are instilling lidocaine, you know, indwelling lidocaine, 20 minutes, puridium, glidojet. If you want some Ativan and Percocet, I'm happy to give it to you because, like, that's better than getting injected some drugs and taking half a day. Because you know what? Patients' time is precious. Yes. You know? Well, just think about the patient. It's not only her time for the procedure, but to Mark's point, she has to have a pre-op. Like, she has to take time to do all of the paperwork and the anxiety of being in a place that's not familiar versus being in your doctor's office where you know the people and you know the front desk and the anxiety of not knowing what it's going to cost. So knowing that if it's in the office, you owe an office copay and that's it versus you've got the anesthesiologist, maybe you have pathology, you've got lab and you've got the facility fee, all of which you have to pay a percentage of and then the physician fee as well. But we don't think about the the delta in cost to the patient, but it's significant. And if a patient is being referred to you, they've already had their pap, they've already had their endometrial biopsy, they're coming to see you for this procedure, you could, in theory, do it. If they're coming for that the day you meet them, I mean, is that... You could. I mean, I never like to operate or do anything on somebody I've only met once, but for rural patients, if we can... Or do a telemedicine visit to meet them. Exactly. You could do a lot of that stuff, which we're trying to do now. For a lot of our surgical patients, we, you know, they know what they're getting. Here's who I am. Here's what I think we can do. And they're prepared. You don't like to meet anyone the day you operate on them. But at the same time, these patients, if, if they need care and where they are, a lot of these places are care deserts. And to be able to come up and get destination care within your own state in America is not, not a lot of us think in that way, but I certainly do. This definitely could add something to our practice. It's very interesting. So. I know this is different, but I just have to ask you guys, uh, experts in the field, about uh, radiofrequency ablation. What is it? Like, is it just for zapping a fibroid? Like, how, how does that work? So radiofrequency ablation for fibroids is not dissimilar to radiofrequency ablation for liver tumors or lung tumors or kidney tumors. It's been around a very long time. It's a destructive energy delivery system. The two that are on the market now for fibroids are ultrasound. I mean, there there's a lot of machine learning that went into helping the algorithm to know exactly how long to deploy the radio frequency. So it's made them far safer than, you know, in the old days, we would just randomly like stick needles in and key the electrode for a while and sort of look at it and decide, oh, it's cooked or it's not. We don't do that anymore. These two newer technologies are very specific. They can see fibroids that we would not be able to see. So one of my problems with laparoscopic myomectomy was always the lack of my ability to feel for the princess in the pea. You know, the fibroids that were in the in the myometrium that I couldn't see on the surface. Well, now with intra-abdominal ultrasound or intra-cavitary ultrasound, they're able to see all these little fibroids and all these, you know, fibroids. So it can be a really... I think, again, it's a democratizing technology. People who are not skilled enough to do, and myomectomies are hard. You know, you have to think through the operation. They're bloody. You have to be able to suture and suture well. This democratizes the ability to treat uterine fibroids without hysterectomy among anybody who can do lapros laparoscopy or hysteroscopy.
instead of global endometrial ablation that we're talking about, this is really focused towards the two devices that are out there. One is laparoscopic. So you've got a camera, you got a port for a camera, you have a port for a laparoscopic ultrasound probe that goes onto the uterus and a needle basically that goes through the abdominal wall and into the uterus and these little tines come out into the fibroids and you're watching it through the ultrasound probe to make sure that it's in the right spot, that's cooking the time and all those things. The transcervical approach to me is more interesting because that's still laparoscopy, it's still abdominal entry, it's still a big procedure. And like Barbara said, myomectomy is a big, it's a big surgery. I don't care how minimally invasive you do it. There's always those small fibroids, one, two centimeter fibroids, or the asymptomatic three, four centimeter fibroids. They're there. You know they're going to grow, but do I want to do this big procedure on somebody if they're asymptomatic? Transcervically now, it, 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 the ultrasound probe goes in through the cervix and the probe comes sort of parallel to that and you can watch it through the ultrasound directly into the fibroid. And so now I'm making no incisions. The fibroids that I was going to maybe, do I just leave that alone or watch it? I can get them while they're small and they never become big. And so that to me is a pretty radical change in thinking about how much we just go, oh, you have small fibroids, they're asymptomatic, ignore it. It's normal. Well, it's not normal. It could become a problem later and you may, or they're mildly. Yeah, I would argue that I would never operate on an asymptomatic patient. Uh, asymptomatic, but not as symptomatic. If there's ways that they say symptomatic, but they don't want a big open myomectomy or myomectomy, and they're, they're all looking for something less. I said, thank you for that clarification. And no, I, I 100% agree, but you're more likely to offer a procedure that is less invasive, no incision, same day surgery. And the, and you brought up uterine artery, artery or uterine fiber embolization. That is ischemic necrosis of the fibroid, which ischemia is very, very painful versus RF ablation destroys fibroids via coagulative necrosis. So it's not as painful. So the it's like our, our patients in our UFU program are admitted overnight, PCAs or, you know, regional anesthesia. It's very painful overnight. And so even though there's no incisions, the pain is enough that they're actually admitted overnight just for pain control in our practice. Whereas for RF ablation, same to discharge NSAIDs, like they're not really having anything close to the pain that they experience for uterine fiber embolization. Yeah. What I love the most about it is to exactly to Mark's point, you can treat all the fibroids that are there. So once a patient needs a procedure for her fibroids, being able to treat all of them will avoid the reduce that happen when you can't see those ones that are, you know, pushing towards the cavity. Got it. I don't know exactly the details. I knew it was a new hot technology and people are starting to do it. And I love that about the minimally invasive gynecology crowd. I mean, we have innovation in urogynecology, of course, like absolutely. But like, you know, there's fibroids has been have and bleeding, abnormal uterine bleeding have been such a sticky problem for so long. And I mean, there's truly some big advances in the field. Yeah, we'll have to have a whole other episode on fibroids and, 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 Absolutely. and, and, and new technologies because we, we're, we're just getting the transcervical ablation device where I am now. So we'll be starting that soon. Hopefully I'll have done it by the time this episode airs. But that's something I've been following for a very long time. And it, it is something that I think will pretty dramatically change the approach. And it's evolved. I mean, since since the original design, it's it's far better than what the original thoughts were about it. So yeah, no, I'm very excited about either the laparoscopic or the transcervical as opportunities for general OBGYNs, not necessarily mixed trained, to be able to manage fibroids without telling every woman she needs a hysterectomy. As always, 
Dr. Levy, I learn a great deal whenever I get the chance to chat with you. It's always a pleasure. I'm so grateful for our, our friendship and your mentorship and my, my luck in getting to work with you over the years. And it's been an absolute pleasure tonight, as it always is, to have the opportunity to chat with you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It's It's been so much fun, as always. You're awesome. Thank you so much. I've like just been so inspired by you and just being a part of this journey with you has been awesome. And I'm so glad you're continuing to do all the great work that you're doing. And you you never, you always have curiosity and you always have this desire to see things push forward, which I hope I can sustain that as well. Cause it makes you, I think it just keeps you young. Well, you are both quite young and you both have that curiosity. So thank you really for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks Barb. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovrijinsky. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.